Welcome to the Rethinking Humanity podcast, where we dive deeper into what makes us human and what causes us to thrive. I'm Lacey Delane. Wait, and- did you guys hear that? Yes. Sonia Larea is not here. <laughs> She's not. Oh my gosh, we miss you, Sonia. That's right. Sonia's not here. She's traveling internationally, everybody, and she's not with us today. However, we do have this really awesome special guest for you named Richard Barry. You may know who he is already from past episodes, but I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. He and I are going to talk about the book Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan. Um, There's some interesting ideas in this book, some things like Is the idea of the noble savage a myth? And how does our medical system aid us in our obsession with avoiding death? Hmm. We're also going to talk about how there is an overlap between Christopher Ryan's writings and those of Eric Fromm, whom many of you know is a lot of what we talk about on this podcast. The writings of Eric Fromm and how they overlap um, with modern life and life today. But first, before we get into all that and get deep into all the fun stuff we have for episode 50, I want to say thank you to all of our subscribers on Substack. If you have not heard, we have moved to the Substack platform. We're super excited about it. It's an excellent platform. I like to call it um, an online podcast community Um you know, subscription-based via email. It's a great uh, blog space as well. So we absolutely love it. And you can subscribe to our Substack via email. And what happens then is that you receive emails whenever we um, release a new episode or, or release any written content. And you can sign up for free. You can sign up Um, If you want to support us uh, with a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription, you can support us financially through Substack, which is one of the main reasons we decided to do it because we hate ads. We hate ads. So that's a big deal. I also had some great feedback from one of our listeners after the last episode. Um, This was from Becca Koenig, and she's a free subscriber she and I are new friends. Um, we met through actually my upcoming adventures to Spain. And she sent me a voice message talking about how much she really enjoyed the episode, how um, how much it was really uh, relevant to today. And that really meant a lot to me. I love hearing feedback from you guys. Um, so please uh, feel free to, to share that. Um, share your feedback as well as send me voice messages or leave comments on our Substack, which we love, love, love um, that element of Substack. So thank you to all of you who are subscribers. Thank you for um, to those who are paid subscribers. And we want to ask you if you have not checked out our Substack yet or become a free subscriber or a paid subscriber, we want to invite you to check out RethinkingHumanity.us. It's www.RethinkingHumanity.us. And when you get there, there's a pop-up window with a little picture of me and Sonia chatting. You can type in your email address, and then it'll take you to a little spot, little page where you decide 
If you want to be a free subscriber, paid subscriber, and then boom, and you're there and you can see everything that we've posted. I'm going to start sharing some uh, more information about my upcoming excitement and exciting adventures and also about um, uh, some of my paintings that I've been doing. So check that out. Again, it's www.rethinkinghumanity.us. All right. I think we are ready for you, Mr. Barry. Richard, how are Hello, you? Hello, Lacey. I'm Hi. great. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you with us. I really appreciate you being here. Richard, you're one of my favorite people to talk to about philosophy, about life, about deep thought inducing ideas. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to have you. It is an honor and you are far too kind. <laughs> well, Richard, you really are being far too humble because as many as you know, Richard, but as maybe many of you who are listening, do not know Richard is actually part of the reason why we started this podcast in the first place, because he started a philosophy meetup group here in the Atlanta area several years ago. And that is where Sonia and I met. Um, so yeah, Richard, you you got this whole let's have a great discussion down pat, I think. Right. Well, and you guys you guys took the ball and ran with it. So Well, I'm Good thankful for, for I'm thankful for that. Will you tell us about Spark briefly? So Spark was an idea that my my good friend Daniel Troutman and I came up with because we um I we had both attended various um philosophy meetup groups in the Atlanta area. Uh, over the course, of, this was probably around 2013, 14, 15, along, along in there. And we just weren't finding the kinds of discussions uh, that we wanted to have. And so we thought, well, let's just do our own. And uh, uh, Daniel gets the credit for the name. I've always thought it, it was such a great name because the whole idea is that you're sparking new ideas, you're sparking friendships. And uh and we try to be, we try to take it seriously and have fun at the same time. So it's not like long, boring lectures. Uh, there's a lot of um, participation by the members. So for instance, I don't do all of the presentations. In fact, I probably only do maybe 10 to 20% of them. And if we have someone in our group, uh, you know, who has a particular interest or has a background, we have a, we have a few PhDs, but th that's not by any means required. Right. Uh, but we do have some really smart folks in the group. And so any any time that I want to take the floor, I, I shine the spotlight on them. And um, so, yeah, we're, we um, we typically we're, we go through a book together, but it's not exactly like a book club because it's not absolutely necessary that you have read it because the presentation will sort of summarize whatever it is we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just have great conversations that sometimes go into the wee hours. Yes. And I have been a part of it since I think 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and I have been incredibly pleased with the quality of conversations that come out of it and the diversity of, of um, perspectives that we experience within the group and then the camaraderie. It really feels like an open welcome 
um, respected. Nobody has to agree with anybody. We're just all there to kind right. of connect. And it feels, it really does feel like a community. Um, not every meetup group that you see on the meetup.com app is that way. So Richard, I remember you telling me a couple years ago, something about like the reason why you started it was after reading uh, Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a cool story. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a true fact that, you know, it later into the, you know, 1970s, 80s, 90s, uh, our society really became very atomized with, you know, people living in their homes, you know, you, you pull in the driveway, you close the garage door behind you. Uh, maybe you go to church, maybe you don't. Uh, and that's about it. I mean, we don't have things like the Elks Lodge anymore and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, so <clears throat> it's great to, you know, have a community, but if one's not around you, sometimes you just have to take it upon yourself to create that community. And I consider the people that are a part of Spark to be members of my tribe. That's the way I like to think of it. Hmm. Uh, it's, you know, we just, we have a common interest in asking big questions and thinking about them. Right. Well, and a tribe it has been for me, Richard. <laughs> I mean, I think what I recall and remember you sharing with me with regards to, you know, the link between Spark and um, bowling alone is that you you said, hey, I want to create community. I, I want to fill this gap. And it definitely has felt that way for me. I know Cheryl and Steve, um, of course, me and Sonia's friendship has grown. And then, of course, here we are doing the podcast. So um, and then, I mean, you know, there's just great friendships that have come out of it, not to mention, you know, our, our friendship as well. And sure. even to the point of like, <laughs> Richard helped me whenever I was sick, I had an ear infection. He drove me to the urgent care and drove me home and I was nauseous and throwing up. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's the idea behind it all is, is to be able to help each other out and build that community that we really need. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I've really, really enjoyed and appreciated the group and your friendship and, you're genuinely curious about people and you yes. genuinely care about people. And, and I love that. It's, it's really fun. Um, it's really fun thing to uh, be around. Amazing to think that, I mean, chances are I would never have met people had, had this group not been set up. They just that's would never right. have come into my life. That's right. That's right. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. So, yay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> cool. Um, so I want to start by a quick question before we get into civilized to death, because mm -hmm. I'm just curious, how did you get interested in philosophy? How did you get in, interested mm. in these kind of conversations? So I guess it was probably around the mid 2000s. Uh, I had started my own business and I was kind of a sole entrepreneur, so I was just um, kind of stuck at home. Had you know, I was, had a uh, bedroom in the spare, had an office in a spare bedroom, and uh, just kind of spent my days alone. And that, around that time was when podcasting was really coming to the fore, and I started listening to podcasts. 
uh, I started, which a lot of these podcasts led me to various types of books. I mean, I have no real formal training in philosophy. I mean, I took a couple of courses in college. That's about it. But uh, the more I, you know, had just basically had time to think and and, and just based, based on the kinds of things I was interested in, it uh, led me down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing what happens when you have time to think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning that more and more right. um, lately. So that's very cool. So basically podcasts, which led you to books, which led you to, you just kind of learning what you were super interested in even mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think it was kind of a search for answers too, right? Just like answers to the big questions. Like what, you know, what are the, what, what do the ancient traditions say, you know, and then what do the more modern philosophers say? And uh, I think, I think the, uh, you know, paradoxically, the more I study this, the less I know. I mean, we, we were just recently talking about Socrates and that was the thing that he would always say is that, you know, above all else, the thing I know is that I know nothing. You know, you have to kind of start with that beginner's mind. Yeah, it's true. The more I read, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, there's not enough time in my life for me to read mm -hmm. everything I want to read. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I have heard how good it is to read, you know, read Socrates, read these like founding thinkers, philosophical right. thinkers, and right. read them over and over and over again. But right. you can't really exhaust it. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that I've loved about Spark is that it's not an intimidating environment. Like you're saying, like you are not, you don't have a PhD. This is mm -hmm. not, and, and you, that's not required. And I mm -hmm. think that's great because it really invites people in and they don't feel like they have to, you know, be some superstar to, to participate, which is great. Right. So, Absolutely. Well, um, how did you get interested in the book Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan? Because of you. <laughs> now, Lacey, um, Lacey told me about the book, and I was skeptical at first. She was throwing out some facts about, you know, some claims that Christopher Ryan was was uh, was saying, and I, I I was thinking to myself, well, that's that's probably easily debunked. Um, so I, I started on a search and uh, came across a interview on YouTube and it was Michael Shermer. And if you folks out there don't know who Michael Shermer is, he, he's probably America's foremost skeptic. He's actually the editor in chief of skeptic magazine. So it's one of these magazines that basically like debunk UFOs and debunk uh, Bigfoot and that sort of thing. So he, mm -hmm. he's written some, uh, Michael Shermer has written some great books on basically how the mind works. Mm -hmm. and one of the, book titles, uh, this may not be exactly right, but it's something like why people believe weird things. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I saw that Michael Shermer was interviewing Christopher Ryan and okay, so this Mike, Michael's going to set Mr. Ryan straight. He's going to correct his thinking and then we'll be on our way. But it was, it was not that at all. It was a great conversation between two really smart guys and the stuff they disagreed on was, pretty minuscule um, because Christopher had an opportunity to really lay out his case and to, uh, you know, sort of um, clear up, you know, misconceptions about 
what he's trying to say. And um, I think, you know, there's some folks that are listening might have heard of Steven Pinker, who wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and, or I guess it was just called Our Better Angels. Anyway, um, uh, based on a quote by Abraham Lincoln. Anyway, um, I can look it up. In that book, he talks about basically progress, right? He's, he's one of these progressive types. And uh, and I still have a lot of respect for, for Pinker, and I think in, in a lot of ways he's right. Um, but he, in one of his books, he talks about this sort of fallacy of noble savage thinking. And that's one of the main things is people really actually Michael Shermer pointed out that like back in the seventies, there were lots of these books about how groovy it was way back in the day when we were just hunters and gatherers and foragers. And we just laid around in the sun and just enjoyed ourselves all day. And some of those books were not exactly scientific. Um, but that was, that was kind of this, this idea, this fallacy of the quote unquote noble savage. And Christopher Ryan actually tackles that exact quote uh, that exact phrase and the thinking that goes behind it. And he just really, uh, you know, pulls back the layer, the layers of the onion, because this is chapter, I guess this is chapter two. He talks about, um, he talks about the phrase noble savage. And he says the phrase was born of meaningful confusion and bad intentions. Uh, the confusion apparently arose from two associated meanings of the word nobility which connotes both exalted behavior and elevated economic class. And then this is what really surprised me. He says, this is Christopher Ryan talking now. He says, contrary to popular impression, Jean-Jacques Rousseau did not originate the phrase. I mean, that's, if you know much about philosophy, when you hear Rousseau, you think noble savage. These are just two things that have just become, you know, amalgamated together over time. But even he never even used it in his writing. So yeah. basically, the misunderstanding about what the phrase is, they were saying that, for instance, um, when the Europeans were, were coming to the New World and observing the quote-unquote American savages, they were saying that what they saw reflected in the Indians' lives was the same kinds of freedoms, privileges, and responsibilities of the European nobility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I've, I'm looking at it now. The average human being enjoyed economic and political freedoms, which only a privileged minority enjoy today. Men decided for themselves how long they would work on a particular day, <laughs> what they would work at, or if they would work at all. Neither rent, taxes, nor tribute kept people from doing what they wanted to do. Such relaxed, unconstrained lives would have been striking to a European accustomed to living in a society which only nobility enjoyed anything similar. There you go. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's striking, right? That was uh, anthropologist Marvin Harris and Cannibals and Kings. Um, so, yes, um, you are... I mean, I think your skepticism is not uh, unsurprising at the beginning mm -hmm. about right. this book. And then 
you know, I love you know, the story of how you, um, you know, were like, well, I'll just watch somebody debunk him and it'll be fine. <laughs> you know? And I can and just so, go on with my life with my, with my same preconceptions, you know, undisturbed. Exactly. Exactly. And then you're like, Oh shit, that's <laughs> what's going on. Oh, but you know? that was just, that's just one surprise. I mean, it's, we were as, as Lacey and I were talking earlier today in preparation for this, just going through the book, it's just like just a collection of the best blog posts you've read, like over the years, like each chapter has just a, just packed full of really interesting and surprising things. Yes. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Now, I think there's a story that goes along with this myth of the noble savage. Um, I think that we had talked about before. Is that right, Richard? So uh, you might be uh, referring to the story that uh, Christopher Ryan talks about the filmmaker, Johnny Hughes, this um, filmmaker mm -hmm. who had, uh, he was, uh, living with what's called the insect tribe in a remote part of Papua New Guinea. And so he's gone down there to film the way these people live. And so people on this film crew think, well, wow, you know, we should take some of these, you know, tribesmen, you know, load them on a plane and fly them to London thinking they're just going to be blown away by how beautiful and, you know, wonderful our lives are. And so they, they, they come and these, these, uh, these tribesmen are staying in, in the home of, of one of the filmmakers. And they notice that the father each morning leaves very early to go to work and doesn't come, doesn't come home until late at night. And um, so they're asking, you know, they're just asking lots of questions like, what, you know, what, what are you doing all day? And well, I'm working. Well, why are you working so so long? And they said, "Well, I have to pay for this house." And they're like, "Well, well, how how long is it going to take you to pay for the house?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't know, maybe twenty or thirty years." <laughs> and they're like, they just couldn't believe this. They were like, "In our village, if a man needs a house, the the men of the village just come together and build the house." <laughs> and that's that's it. It's that's just it. this amazing contrast in how these people, you know, how these different cultures, you know, live. Yeah. And I think I recall it saying something about how he thought that they would come there and be like, wow, this is amazing. I want to stay here. Right. And they were like, when do we get to go back? Exactly. <laughs> like they were not interested in staying at exactly. all. Right. Right. So yes, very interesting, very different way of life. And I think, this book, uh, Civilized to Death, does an excellent job of drawing the contrast between how we're living today mm -hmm. and what civilization and being civilized, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, looks like and what that means in contrast to hunter-gatherer societies. Mm -hmm. And what, what makes me fascinated with this book is this whole idea of what life was like for hunter gatherers. Um, mm -hmm. I read Christopher Ryan's first book, which is called sex at dawn. And he mm -hmm. talks a lot about hunter gatherer societies in that book. And since reading that, I've thought, wow, this is so interesting. I want to read more. 
Um, and of course, I think Civilized to Death came out in like 2018 or something, but I just Somewhere read it. There. Yeah, I think it's it's been a few years, but I just read this mm -hmm. within the last six months or something or eight right. months or something. So right. uh, it's a little later than when it came out. But anyway, I, I, I was just like, how do I learn more about this? And for me and those of you who listen, you know how interested I am in different ways of doing life mm -hmm. um, and how interested I am in ways of doing life that seems more in line with our humanity, that seems more in line with our human nature, that seems more in line with our human needs, um, as Frome would say, too. Mm -hmm. um, this was like striking to me like this is so yeah. interesting and a lot of right. what he says in this book about how hunter-gatherers live is very similar to a lifestyle that i think from would say this is a healthy lifestyle for mm -hmm. a human being right yes yeah, living in the what, what is the phrase living in the being instead of the having yes the being right. mode of existence that's right i i, right. I want to read this from page 33 um, mm -hmm. because I think it's a good tie to what I'm just saying. No wonder author Christopher Benfee in his survey of utopian communities around the world found that even when separated by time, nationality and religious orientation, they almost always share a few basic foundational ideas that society should be based on cooperation rather than competition that the mm -hmm. nuclear family should be subsumed into the larger community, mm -hmm. that property should be held in common, that women should not be subordinate to men, that work mm. of even the most menial kind must be accorded a certain dignity. Right. Not coincidentally, this is essentially a description of the social world in which Homo sapiens evolved. Mm -hmm. Modern humans are lost and we're looking for ways to go home the narrative of, of perpetual progress has it backwards. Prehistoric man wasn't wolf to man. So, yeah, I mean, I think that tells you a lot. Like the hunter-gatherers was mostly about cooperation, not competition, which is the opposite of how our society is. It's about competing, mm -hmm. having a better house than the guy next door, having a bigger car, making more money, you know. The right. nuclear family is like worshipped. Everybody lives within four walls. Right. Getting out into the community is a challenge. You have to make efforts to do it intentionally. And when we work as much as we do, who has time for that shit? Like right. property is not held in common. Women mm -hmm. are pretty subordinate to men and work of menial kinds are not respected. So we're not there. We're right. not there. Right. And that ties into something uh, when I was re-listening to um, the book on on uh, Audible, there was a section. One thing that was another thing that was really eye opening about this is the Bible itself was a kind of product of the agricultural revolution mm. right? in the sense that when you're talking about property, uh, one of the Ten Commandments is you know, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, et cetera, et cetera. So right. the, the wife is just mentioned in this sort of string of property. These yes. Are things your neighbor owns. So don't touch them. Your stuff is over here. His stuff is over there. It's not held in common. 
Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought that was really, really interesting. Yes. And, you know, Fromm writes a lot about how we can't get to a place where we're living in a society that humanity that, that's a humanistic society in the mm -hmm. sense of like we're t we are able to thrive as human beings we mm -hmm. can't get there unless we have unless there's equality with women unless women mm -hmm. are treated like equals and not like property right. and right. i would say that's probably it's i mean it's the case it's got to be the case too with different races and right. you know whatever so yes that that is uh, super, super important, I think, in the evolution of things. And mm -hmm. I know there's another quote in here. I think I have it highlighted. Let me see where he talks about someone who wrote a book about, I think this is it. Hang on. Someone who wrote, yes. Um, the egalitarianism of foragers extends to mm -hmm. women as well as men. And women in prehistory, for example, Margaret Ehrenberg is clear that social organization is based on equality between individuals and between the sexes. Everyone has equal opportunity to put forward suggestions and have them listened to. And every individual has the right to make his or her own decision about what to do in any particular instance. Mm -hmm. So basically she's written a whole book about women in prehistory and mm -hmm. about how much we weren't treated like the thing that you don't covet of your neighbors. Right, right. <laughs> so the thing with the agricultural revolution is that women became baby-making machines because uh -huh. now that we've domesticated uh, cows, for instance, children could be weaned sooner. So the forager tribes, you know, a child might be breastfed until she's three or four years old. And yes. so this would uh, this would delay, you know, the the additional children. So uh, over the course of their life, they might have fewer children. Whereas once you're now living in an agricultural society, you need children to help you on the farm. Right. Yeah. And he even mentions, too, about how that uh, biologically has affected us as women as well. So mm -hmm. he talked about how you mentioned the weaning at ages three or four or even mm -hmm. five. So breastfeeding until that age. And as mm -hmm. a result of that periods for women were a lot, a lot less common. Mm -hmm. And so, and then of course, you know, the child rearing might continue after that, which would mm -hmm. change. But basically, there's a section in this book about how um, the frequency of our periods as mm -hmm. women in modern society is actually potentially, they're doing research to see, adding to um, the incidence of cancer and, right. you know, sickness and disease because our bodies mm -hmm. aren't made to, to we're, right. we haven't evolved in a way where we've, we've, had a period this often because of how we've lived mm -hmm. previously. Right. Right. Super interesting that the whole chapter on um, kids basically in here, it's chapter six, I believe I'm going to go there now. Mm -hmm. um, it is born to be wild is the chapter. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. so fascinating um, because 
again, he's drawing a strong contrast between how we do things now and how they did things. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in here um, is his commentary on um, and his presentation of research on babies who are delivered by C-section mm-hmm. versus babies who are delivered <laughs> vaginally and how important the vaginal fluids are right. on babies. Right. Yeah. So basically what he's saying is that there is an important immune immunity that comes right. from uh, the, the vaginal fluids from the mother. And so right. they're seeing folks who are being delivered, uh, sorry, babies who are being delivered surgically are appear are appearing to be at a higher risk of developing various immune and metabolic disorders mm-hmm. like type one diabetes, allergies, asthma, and obesity. So this whole idea of the natural childbirth mm-hmm. being more important <clears throat> than maybe we've previously thought. Yeah. He, he writes here, cleanliness may be next to godliness, but when it comes to delivering babies, messier is better. <laughs> True. It says in a study of children born within a few days of one another in the same hospital in Brazil, those delivered by C-section were found to be missing the, quote, starter biome Mm. that babies delivered vaginally got naturally from their mothers. Yeah. So interesting. And I mean, this is not to to like criticize anybody who has a Mm C-section. It's just to point out the differences in the way, because we're all just doing the best we can, right? In the in the society that we're in, but it's super interesting to see how important that part actually is and can be. Yeah, and I would I, I don't want to speak out of school because I'm certainly not a doctor, but I, I I have a suspicion. And if you ever have a an OBGYN as a guest, I'd like to see if this is confirmed or not. But I have a suspicion that C, that the decision to do C sections is largely an economic decision. That is to legally protect the hospital from <laughs> dangers that could arise from, uh, you know, yes, yes, a difficult labor. I, I would agree. I could, I could be wrong. I'm just throwing it out there. No, 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 totally. I agree with that. We could be wrong, but it might be more about money or la- avoiding lawsuits than. Mm-hmm anything else, which is very, very sad. Maybe someone will comment on your Substack if they're- That would be awesome. In the, in please. the uh, child delivery business. Let us know. Let us know if we're right, please. Please do, please do. <laughs> the, there's a lady named Sarah Hardy um, who he quotes in this chapter that um, she has some really powerful things to say and some of them that things, some of them that people may not uh, enjoy hearing. Mm. Um but she talks about how mothers during this time um, in hunter-gatherer societies were likely to be embedded with a network of supportive social relationships. Um, f- without that, few, mo- few mothers and infants were likely to survive. Mainstream narratives of human sexual evolution imagine the role of provider having been privatized to an individual man, Mm. like some kind of 1950s suburban housing development. But in (laughs) fact, provisioning was provided by the band in general. And this is, this is a little um, controversial here, but if by some unfortunate circumstance, it wasn't the mother and infant were 
unlikely to survive long. Mm. Tragic as a situation would be on another level, it meant that only happy, loved, wanted children grew up to carry forward mm. the mutually supportive values of that society. Right. And, and he talks in this chapter about how that's not the case today. So does Sarah Hardy. Um, that's not the case nowadays. In fact, much of what we see with child raising today is could could be called, um, sorry to say it like this, it's pretty blunt, but it could be called neglect, neglectful right. um, compared to how mm-hmm. much skin to skin contact, mm-hmm. how much response to infant cries, um, how much there were people just constantly around and it wasn't just like all the responsibility for the child was on one or two people. Um, Mm -hmm. And then lots of free play that they had. So it's a very different world now for kids. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but honestly, I, um, Lacey and I both live in the city of Atlanta and we have a pretty big homeless problem here. Not as bad as LA, but it's, it's, it's bad. Yeah. And honestly, every time I see a homeless person, I just think, you know, this this was essentially a child that at one point who just was not was not given what he or she needed in life to get get established, to get a life going. Um, So, yeah, it's it's really sad. It is sad. And yet the standard narrative will tell you to blame that person because it's their fault mm. because they need to go get a damn job. They, they need to just go get a job. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Very, very sad. Well, Richard, I wanted to share, too, from this last chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not the last chapter, but the last chapter that I thought that I would want to share on tonight, which is chapter right. 10, yeah. All's Well That Ends Well. And mm-hmm. then um, as we wrap up, you also can let me know if there's one last place you want to go, cause I'm totally open to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, this chapter, chapter 10, I have to say, I'm so thankful that Christopher Ryan wrote this chapter mm-hmm. because I had not thought about this at all. Like mm. I had not thought about end of life and death in the way uh-huh. that he presents it ever at, in this way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, basically he's mentioning how in the U.S. and in even modern um, Western industrial society, we have a fear of death. We have a we have this desire to avoid death, um, mm-hmm. and in our desire to avoid it, we end up causing ourselves a lot more pain and suffering and expense mm-hmm. um, in the process of death than if we were to just be realistic about it. And and face it head on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. I hear you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's um, let's see. Let me see what I had. One ninety six. So it says. Um, maybe uh, let me just get the quote of who this is. One of the one of um, the, the authors of a study that he quotes in here. Her name is Joanne Lynn. 
It says that she suspects that medical advances are partly responsible for the increases in patient agony. Maybe Mm. we've made more medical stuff coming at people that maybe lets them live a little bit longer, but under much more burdensome circumstances, she said. You're still going to have to find some way off this terrestrial globe, she said, and it may as well be as comfortable, meaningful, dignified, and inexpensive as as it can possibly be. But then um, Christopher says, comfortable, meaningful, dignified, and inexpensive. Faced with end-of-life issues, many recoil at practical economic considerations. This predictable, generous, humane impulse to ignore costs when confronted with existential matters is based on the assumption that spending more will benefit the patient when the relationship between expense and outcome is often perversely reimbursed. Although the United States spends more on healthcare than any other country in the world, more than 9,000 per capita in 2013, it ranks dead, dead last among advanced countries on a variety of health measures. Rather than prolonging life, we appear to be extending the process of dying. For all its technical sophistication and hefty price tag, wrote internist Craig Boron in the Washington Post, modern medicine may be doing more to complicate the end of life than to prolong or improve it. Um, so I think that he's pulling back the veil a little bit about how are we doing with this end of life thing? Mm-hmm. Very and true. He also says doctors and medical facilities are often responding to perverse financial incentives that reward them for performing expensive, painful procedures, even when they are of no benefit to the patient. This is, this was striking to me, Richard, about 30% of all Medicare expenditures are attributed to the 5% of beneficiaries who die. 30% mm-hmm. are attributed to 5% of the people who die. So we're right. just spending all this money to extend our lives. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the big, um, <clears throat> One thing I like about philosophy is that I like to say you think the way you think because of philosophers whose names you might not know. Right. Mm. So we um, what he what what Christopher Ryan talks about a lot in this book, he brings up uh, Thomas Hobbes um, and he was a philosopher. And if you haven't heard of his name, you've probably heard this quote or some version of it. So Thomas Hobbes wrote in his book, The Leviathan, uh, no arts, no letters, no society. And which is worst of all, continual fear, danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So Thomas Hobbes is talking about how life was essentially before civilization. Mm. Now, what was Thomas Hobbes basing this Thomas Hobbes was basing it on what Thomas Hobbes thought. I mean, there was no, this was too way far beyond, you know, prior to a lot of the archaeological uh, evidence, you know, coming in. But this this just sort of became the narrative that this is what life was like before civilization. And so I think what what when you when you talk when you read this book and you talk to folks about um, what life was like, they typically have bought into this picture, whether they even realize it or not. They say, oh, well, people didn't, you know, they were lucky to live beyond 30. And, and they'll, they'll say things like this. Um, 
But to go back to where we started with the Michael Shermer interview, I think, you know, and I've, I've gotten into some debates with my group about this. And I think oftentimes the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's not as if life among the foragers was some paradise. I think that's what uh, Christopher Ryan is trying to say. But neither was it necessarily as bad as Thomas Hobbes was describing. Right. So I just think we should have our, have our minds open to the possibility that, uh, that it wasn't that bad. And, and, that, and that they definitely had society for sure. Uh, it just wasn't civil, you know, in you know, modern terms. Civil. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, I think hearing you say that recently helped me a lot too, because I definitely could romanticize how life was during these hunter-gatherer periods. And as much as I believe based on what I'm reading, evidence and history and our, you know, anthropological records, um, you know, there was a lot more community and there was a lot more things that right. we humans need. It right. doesn't, that doesn't mean that it wasn't without its challenges. It definitely right. had him. And right. so it was good for me to hear you say that because life isn't like that. It's not, right. it's, it's not perfect. It's now do, is it a lot better than it is now? Or was it probably, I, that's mm. my, that's my assumption based mm -hmm. on what I've read, but right. Um, but I like what you're saying because I do feel like we tend to polarize, you know, it's either black or white, all or nothing right. thinking, right. right? So it was either right. Hobbes or, or, or Ryan, right? Yeah, right. And right. I think like you're saying, it, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, so yeah, but super fascinating. And we, I mean, there's just no way we could tap into all the amazing themes that are in here. Um, but we totally recommend this book. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we can learn a lot, Richard, from what, what evidence is pre presented in this book about how we could rethink the way we do life, mm -hmm. rethink society, rethink humanity right. um, from what we, you know, what's in here from reading this and go, okay, now that we know this from this situation and we know what we know about life now, how right. can we adjust how we're living to just make it better for all of us? Right. And I think we have an opportunity. I think, you know, uh, I, was, I was talking to my friend Tim about th this whole subject and he, he was saying that, you know, had he been living as a, you know, hunter gatherer on the Pleistocene, you know, 5,000 years ago, the thing that he would miss the most is Google. <laughs> I mean, because isn't it amazing that, and this has literally happened in, in my lifetime. I mean, I'm in my fifties, but uh, you know, and I, I grew up watching Star Trek and, you know, sometimes they'd be on the enterprise and they would just, they would just talk to the computer, the computer, what is that? What's happening? What's this? And we have that now, like hmm. what, Oh, you know, when did Christopher Columbus come to America? Well, I don't know. You know let's, let's look it up. I mean, it's like, everything's there. Yeah. And that's, I, so I believe me, you, I appreciate all that modern life, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I don't want, I don't want to sell my house and, and go live in the woods, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I just think there's a way, maybe we're in the best position ever to like synthesize these things together and just recognize how we could actually improve our lives.
Yes, and and Frome wrote about that um, in the Sane Society. He mm. wrote about how we desperately, and again, this was in the fifties, we desperately need to put our best thinkers together mm -hmm. to think about how we can reintegrate all these ideas, all this information, and right. build it into a society that's better for humans, better for the living. I would even. Yeah venture to say like not just human beings but you know the environment the trees right. the ocean right. you know sure sure yeah and I mean, i'm an optimist my daughter graduated georgia tech in 2020 with a degree in biology and she works now she works for trees atlanta i mean you know if 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 all young people were more like my daughter <laughs> you're not biased at all not are that you? I'm, not that i'm bragging or anything no but i mean you know <laughs> When I do see certain things that, that the young people are doing today, I, I do have actually some faith in the future. That's great. That's great. I do too. Some, just a little bit. <laughs> well, and also uh, meeting people like you, Richard, helps too. So thank you so much for being here with us. This is awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, you're awesome. And thank you guys for being with us. Um, for this episode of the Rethinking Humanity podcast. Let us make know sure what you thought. What did you say? I said I was just telling the people to let it, let us know what the what they think yes. on the Please let us know what you think on the Substack. Um, check us out. You can do that at www.rethinkinghumanity.us. We will happily respond to your comments. Um, and we, again, appreciate you being here with us. Special thanks to Richard again for being here with us. And we hope you guys have a wonderful night. And we'll see you next time on the Rethinking Humanity podcast.